Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. If we're going to Good morning, good morning. It is Tuesday, the 18th of October, 2022. I'm Carmen LeBurge, listening to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Thank you so much for including me in your day. I hope you are um, well this morning, and I hope it is well with your soul this morning. We're going to lead off in an unusual way. Normally, I do the Growing Your Faith verse of the day here at the top of this hour, but I'm going to save that for um, the bottom of the hour today, because we're going to have a conversation about fasting and feasting um, in the in the second half of this hour. And because today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day from Matthew chapter 6 is about fasting, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Because um, today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day is about fasting, and our conversation in the second half hour today is about fasting, we're going to save our reflection time on that passage for a little bit later. So let me lead off this morning with with a headline that's really um, a podcast. So there is an article uh, in The New Yorker, and then there is a related podcast um, that is an hour long or so, and I listened to it over the weekend. And you're going to say, well, that was an interesting choice of how to spend your time. Well, for the, from there, I actually went down a rabbit hole <clears throat> of one um, audio offering after another, basically on this same topic, and I learned a lot. And so I want to share with you what's going on across the country following the decision of the Supreme Court related to abortion access in the United States of America. So you know this as the Dobbs decision, and you know this as, you know, what would be described as like a post-Roe era of time. So the headline in The New Yorker is is related to the post-Roe abortion underground. Now that would probably uh, lead you to believe that there are underground abortions taking place. And so, yeah, we are now um, at the place where we not only openly admit that chemical abortions, um, abortions that are accomplished by the taking of a couple of pills um, by a woman, you know, on her own at home, um, we're now at the place where everybody is acknowledging that's a chemical abortion. That is an abortion. There is a a human life being ended in the womb of a woman, um, by the taking of these drugs. Well, what I didn't know um, about all of that is not only is, you know, are chemical abortions now the number one way in which abortion is accessed in America, like by, by, overwhelmingly, by overwhelming percentages, most abortions in America are now accomplished through this um, deadly cocktail of drugs that a woman takes um, ordinarily in the first trimester of her pregnancy. And, uh, and, one of the drugs makes the womb an inhospitable place, um, makes, 
makes it a, a place where the egg cannot uh, uh, it cannot any longer attach to the uterine wall. The other drug um, squeezes the uterus in a way that that the baby is expelled. There's no other way to say that. So this cocktail of drugs is available here in the United States of America, but it's costly. Something like five hundred dollars, um, and you got to you know it's it's there's still a prescription that's necessary. It's not just a an over the counter. Um, Anybody can go and get it, but you do have to have the money to pay for it. So there has emerged this network, the New Yorker calls them activists, I will call them criminals, um, who go into Mexico where these drugs are sold over the counter. Um, They buy these drugs, they hide them in merchandise that they purchase in Mexico, and these are women who have global entry, these are U.S. citizens, who have global entry to the United States, and so they freely pass over our southern border um, in their SUVs, and they come back to the United States with these pills, um, and then they send them through the U.S. mail to women all over the country who make these requests through these quote-unquote angel networks. And um, I, you know, the New Yorker posted this this article, the Post wrote Abortion Underground, and the uh, accompanying podcast as if, you know, it's basically a public service. It's a it's a celebration. Um, they are absolutely, you know, putting out there in public what is what is being done in secret. Um, and they're basically telling you how to how to access this network of criminals. And I am saying to myself, we have lost all shame. We don't even recognize that when something is illegal, we ought not actively participate in it and promote it. Um through through the spoken word and print media. So um, now that you know, what do you do? Now that you know, what do you do? Now that you know, what do you say? That is, I think, where the rubber meets the road for Christians in the culture today. We know, we can see, we, we have heard about what is going on that is not right in the eyes of God. But what do we then do? How do we then behave? How now do we live? We're not the first generation to ask that question, but it is the question of our generation as well. We're going to talk with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith in just a moment about the intersection of politics and religion here in the United States of America. But it's the intersection that takes place in each one of our lives as well. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Joining us now, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. You know him from Cedarville University. You can uh, connect with him on Twitter or online. Hey, Mark, good morning. Good morning, Carmen. How are you doing today? Well, I, I it is well with my soul, my friend. It is well with my soul. How about you? Uh, it's going very well. We're enjoying our fall. Hopefully mm-hmm. it will be a long fall, although we did have a, a few flurries last night, which is not mm-hmm. very common for Ohio. <laughs> A little early for a flurry. Mm-hmm. It is, no doubt. Yeah. So um, out of the footage released um, in kind of in collaboration with or certainly along the same timeline as the uh, the last hearing um, or, I don't know, public show of the January 6th committee last right. week, 
Um, we have all of this uh, documentary footage that was uh, recorded by Nancy Pelosi's daughter, who is apparently a documentarian and had a camera with her documenting <clears throat> everything that took place. Like, literally, there's film footage of every moment of Nancy Pelosi's life on January the 6th, 2021, which in and of itself is an interesting indication that somebody thought there was going to be something newsworthy happening. Right. And so they they rolled a camera all day long. Um, Part of the footage that was released, I haven't heard very many people talk about, but I wanted to talk with you about it. Nancy Pelosi is seen praying with colleagues um, on several occasions throughout the day. And one of those pieces of footage has now you know, been um, not only released, but lifted up online. Talk with us about your observations related to the Speaker of the House of the United States of America publicly leading in prayer um, on January the 6th, 2021. Yeah, I, I think it, it's it, it, I'm conflicted. Let me say that. Me I'm too. Me too. It. Which is why um, I thought we should talk about it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm conflicted. I'm always uh, suspicious. Honestly, just be very candid with you and your audience. I'm always suspicious when politicians uh, use prayer or use religious language or quote from the Bible or quote from hymns or whatever it may be. Uh, for very obviously political reasons. Now, sometimes it's sometimes I think they're legitimate. They're obviously Christian people, and this is just them sort of displaying their faith, and I understand that. But this can also be a very powerful tool uh, for a politician to use to uh, curry favor with religious people, to sort of uh, you know get votes, to win uh, campaign donations, and everything else. And so I'm always suspicious when when we see this sort of thing. But this is a little different because uh, these are private moments in some way, right? But in another way, there's a camera there. So there's something of a performance happening, a little bit of a performance happening because there's a camera. On the other hand, she's not you know, making a public speech or a public address. And I think in some ways it makes her seem like a genuine person in the sense that she's clearly uh, understands the importance of the day. She's trying to help her colleagues get through the day. And prayer was an, a, a big theme on all of January 6th. Sometimes it was used destructively uh, by people literally in the Capitol as they were sacking it in some ways. Uh, sometimes it was used to comfort people by chaplains and by members of Congress themselves as they're you know fearful for their own lives. And I think it humanizes them in a way that I think is, is good and appropriate. Uh, you know, I'm happy that my political leaders think they need prayer you know, in order to get through their political lives. I think that should give us some heart in some ways. At the same time, I, you know, I have a complicated relationship with uh, Nancy Pelosi's politics. I don't agree with her on, on almost any, on most issues. And so it's, it's conflicting to me. I'm curious how you, how it struck you. I mean, I, you know, I study this sort of thing for a living. I'm curious how it struck you. Um, I've been in a room with her where she prayed. Um, it's been a number of years ago. Um, and the conflict that I felt in my being in the moment was palpable. Um, and so I definitely have this, um, she, she ardently believes what she believes. Um, and I, and I do, and I do think that she perceives herself to be a God fearing Catholic person. Um, but, but I also recognize that, um, she views particularly a woman's right to to choose in relationship right. to um, the life of the unborn child within her. Um, there's a huge disconnect there, not only from the Roman Catholic ter- Church of which she professes to be right. a part, but her right. public um, leading on that 
that was the context of the conversation taking place in the room that I was in. And so for me, there was just this incredible disconnect between what she was saying um, at a and when she talks about abortion, um, she does so with a fervency that is like yes. prayer. It is. Uh, yes. So I'm just saying, like, I'm I am like you. I am conflicted. Um, I'm also very interested in the lack of response by um, by people who, you know, are always out there championing the separation of church and state. They seem to be right. applauding um, expressions of faith on January the 6th by <laughs> leaders who they like. And so, you know, I, I do think that as a Christian in the culture today, there is this opportunity to say, OK, so I'm interested to understand why you're supportive of Nancy Pelosi praying publicly and leading in prayer in in these ways among her caucus on this day. But you're not interested in um, a football coach being allowed to pray, um, you know, on his own following a football game. Like, I'm I'm interested to understand why you're okay with prayer and and the leadership in prayer in these environments, but not in these other environments. Help me understand, you know, why you see this as an infringement um, you know, of your understanding of the separation of church and state and, and why this over here is not likewise an infringement. I think it's a, I think it's a great uh, perspective. I think it's, it's also interesting to me how uh, as a democratic leader, you know, we tend to associate religion and public displays of religion more with the Republican party. Uh, but as a democratic I mean, unless you're leader, Raphael right. Warnock, I mean, That's you know, right. right. Unless you're the candidate for Senate in the state of Georgia and you are the pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist church. I mean, He's, he's a guy who's still functioning in both roles. But I think that shows us that religion is pretty critically important for elements of the Democratic Party as well. And the fact that it was well-received, apparently, and the fact that she's the leader of the party in the House, and this is seen as, I'm guessing, a fairly common or normal activity for her to do this, I think it reveals something about the nature of the Democratic Party uh, that many people would find interesting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I agree with you. I don't, I don't share her political approach, and I certainly fervently disagree uh, with her uh, perspective on abortion. Uh, but religion's important to both political parties. It's just re- important, I think, in a slightly different way. Yeah, totally agree. All right, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith here in just a moment. We are going to um, enter into a conversation about why, why religious liberty matters, even if you're not religious. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Um, yeah, where, um, oh, where are the people who think we should be free from religion uh, in culture today? That's the question appearing most frequently now um, on the text line. So thank you so much for those of you weighing in. We're talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. Uh, Mark, why um, why does religious liberty matter even if you're not a religious person? Well, I mean, religious liberty is really one of the foundational freedoms that we have uh, in our political system. And I know it, it, people often think of it as simply important for those who are religious 
Uh, but it really is important more, much more broadly than that. I think a good way, a good healthy way to think of religious liberty uh, is to think of it as almost equivalent of kind of a freedom of conscience. Uh, it's basically the the ability to believe what you want to believe uh, without governmental interference, or at least with as little governmental interference as possible. So that includes uh, your ability to believe a religious reality of some kind. It also includes your ability not to believe in a religious reality and then to practice uh, that belief as well. And so even though we sometimes associate it, like we were just talking about with a particular party or a particular ideology, uh, this is a very broad liberty and it really is enjoyed by all Americans, whether or not they're, they're religious. So I was, um, I was interested in, uh, in an article in the New York Times a couple of days ago um, that was related to this topic. So David French has a piece on this that's an opinion piece. But a couple of days later, actually a couple of weeks later, there's another opinion piece in the New York Times just appeared a couple of days ago. And it's by an Episcopal priest who is now a married um, person and he's married to another man. And he talks about um, in this article his God-given religious or his God-given right to be married to this individual, which I think we could spend some time talking about whether or not marriage is defined by God or by the Constitution of the United States or some other way. Right. But yep. uh, but we could also talk about this. Um, he asserts that it's uh, that same-sex marriage is a religious freedom. It's a relig- It's an expression of his religious liberty. And then he he's arguing against you know the ways in which people of convictional faith would say, well, it's an encroachment upon my religious liberty right. um, for same-sex marriage to be, you know, uh, a part of um, the demand that a culture would make in terms of what I accept um, in my day-to-day life or in my business. So there's a conflict uh, in yes. the culture today in terms of some people <laughs> viewing their their expression of religious liberty in conflict with the expression of religious liberty of others. And I think this, a lot of this uh, really traces back to uh, how we define and understand that language in the constitution. Um, You know, we as, as Christians tend to see all of our activities as an extension of our religion. You know, we, we have very deep faith. And so whether I'm teaching in front of a classroom or whether I'm baking a cake as a baker um, I tend to view those things as an expression of, of my ability to give glory to God through my work, for example. And so I, I might claim that, you know, when I teach in front of a classroom that I'm exercising religious liberty because of how I view myself in relation to God. And in some way, that's what exactly what this priest is arguing, that it's a very broad conception of religious liberty. And I think this is a problem we're going to have to work our way through um, no matter where you find yourself on the spectrum. Because the language of the Constitution guarantees the free exercise of religion. And I don't think when the founders were writing those words, they were thinking of marriage or they were thinking of teaching or baking a cake. And so we have to think through, you know, how broad is this concept? Does it relate to religious activity? Okay, then how do we define what's religious activity? That's not as simple or straightforward as we might think. Uh, one way that we see them getting around this a little bit is recasting these arguments as free speech arguments or recasting them as the, an artistic freedom arguments and things like that. So we're nowhere near resolving these kinds of questions, but uh, the same-sex rights movement and the trans rights movements, 
these are forcing these questions into the public now, and the Supreme Court's going to have to start to resolve some of these issues. Yeah, I think that that's uh, that's certainly the next season of conversation um, for the Supreme Court, and I would say it needs to be a conversation that every Christian um, is prepared to participate in. So thank you so much for equipping us this morning with some language related to this and, um, you know, taking us right back to the foundational questions. Okay, what does the Constitution say about my religious liberty and the scope and extension of it in terms of um, it being about the free expression of my faith in every area of life? And then what do I do when that comes into conflict with someone else's free expression in a culture like ours? And so that's, I mean, I think that's the root question that most of us need to be asking um, and the conversations that we need to be having today. Yeah, I agree. And if we're going to move forward as a society, we have to have these conversations because they're here. There's no avoiding them. um, And they're going to only become more pressing over the next several years. No question. 100%. Thank you so much, um, Mark, for helping us um, wade into these deep waters today. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. You can find him at Cedarville University um, or on Twitter as well. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. Let's uh, take a moment for Upwards with Max Lucado. All right, today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day, which you can sign up to receive in your inbox every day at MyFaithRadio.com. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Matthew chapter 6. We are we have arrived at verses 17 and 18. Um, and listen to the, uh, the beginning word here, because <clears throat> we're back to when. Yesterday, we, you know, we, we were at if, but today we're back at when. When you fast, Jesus says... Put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus has the expectation that we are going to fast when you fast. Um, Now, remember, the context of this is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, leads off with the Beatitudes. We talked about those. And then um, these teachings of Jesus about fulfilling or exceeding the law. You have heard that it is said, but I say unto you. And then he issues this call to, to this higher righteousness, how he expects um, his followers to live. And this falls into this, what does it look like to, um, to live into the higher righteousness, like a righteousness exceeding the scribes and the Pharisees, the very righteousness of Christ? What does it look like to live as a person um, who you know, I have this righteousness of Christ imputed to me. It's not my own. But how do I live in that? What does that look like? Well, Jesus is going to tell us in chapter six, or he's telling us in chapter six. And so um, everything that you're reading uh, here, today's verse of the day, but those uh, that that precede this and are going to follow it, they all link back to verse one of chapter six, which says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Um, for then, you're, you know, you, um, if you, you know, resist that, if you resist practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, Jesus says, you're going to have a reward from your Father in heaven. So there is this conversation here throughout this portion of chapter 6 about um, what righteousness looks like in the life of a believer how it is practiced, 
practicing your righteousness includes here fasting. So it's a good question. Um, Do you fast? How frequently? As a regular rhythm? And how is fasting about so much more than whether or not we're eating physical food? There is a relationship. We Each one of us has a relationship with food. What's your relationship with food? Um, and how is that relationship with food um, part of the rhythm of craving God and his word and time and fellowship with him versus the cravings that gnaw at us in the pit of our stomach? That's the conversation we're going to have next with Aaron Davis. The book is Fasting and Feasting. Does a relation does your relationship with food come as like a source of constant regret or frustration or shame or does it feel like a blessing? We're going to have that conversation next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, joining us now, Erin Davis. She is the author of Fasting and Feasting. You can find her at erindavis.org. And from there, all of her um, connected socials, Erin is spelled E-R-I-N, Davis, D-A-V-I-S, erindavis.org. Erin, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. So we call this uh, Taste and See Tuesday. On Tuesdays, we're mm. always trying to taste and see that the Lord is good and um, and have, you know, Christ revealed to others as we break the bread of the day. Uh, and so you um, you are a timely Tuesday conversation partner for us. So thank you so much for being here. Um, talk I love with that. Us. Taste and See yeah. Tuesdays. I'm going to adopt that. You you can have it. You can. It's probably <laughs> it's probably not exclusively ours. So um, you have this forty day devotional. It is filled with really, I mean, wonderful re- reflections on these passages of scripture that talk about food, um, and then also talk about feasting or fasting. So um, why this? You know, why this book? Why write this? Because I know it grows out of your own, you know, your own conversations, interactions, and relationship with food. Well, there were probably two kind of parallel things happening in my life. One was that I'd had this complicated relationship with food all my life and can watch it in my mom's life, in my grandma's life. We we love to cook. We love to be in the kitchen. We love to gather around food, but then also have some negative emotions, shame, frustration attached to food. I don't know. I hit my 40s and thought, this can't be it. This can't be what God intended for my life, that this thing, food, which I have to interact with every single day, is a source of such frustration. So always go into God's word and say, okay, how can I find freedom? And it's full of answers. The other thing was that I started fasting regularly. I have a mentor who fasts as an outflow of my own study of scripture. Fasting's all over our Bibles. Um, I started fasting and it it's this, it's this spiritual discipline that is such a tremendous gift. And as I began speaking to other followers of Jesus, realized Many had no idea what fasting looked like, biblical fasting. Many were not practicing fasting at all. And even one step further, there was a lot of resistance to that idea. And it's just part of my kind of 
history as a writer and as a Bible teacher that if I find something that feels like an exposed nerve in the church where we're missing truth, I want to address it. And I think that's true of fasting and then just our relationship with food in general. So take us into um, the, you know, the structure, the pattern, the rhythm, maybe we'll say the rhythm here of um of this 40-day devotional. Again, you guys, the title is Fasting and Feasting, 40 Devotions to Satisfy the Hungry Heart. Um, because there is this fasting and feasting rhythm even in um, even in the book. Yeah, I, I think it mirrors, in some ways, not exactly, but I think it mirrors what we see in Scripture. Um, the Christian life is a life of self-denial. It is a life of submitting our wills to the Lord. And if we read our Bibles and follow what we see, see there, that includes fasting, but the Christian life is not only a life of self-denial. It's also a life of abundance of, like you said, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. That comes from the Psalms, um, from enjoying God's many blessings, a life of gratitude and literal feasting. If you look in your Bible, there's feasts throughout the Old Testament. Jesus spent a great deal of his time feasting. So I wanted to model that um, in my approach to this. Now, I don't see the Bible, nor am I asking you when you read this book to fast one day, feast the next, fast one day, feast the next for 40 days. Uh, I would like you to just take food off the table. Uh, just do your normal thing with food while you're reading this book. But I do hope that it leads you into that rhythm for your life. Um, and which is that there are times that you're fasting, times that you need extra prayer, times that someone you love needs extra prayer, times when your heart is extra grieved. Those are good moments for fasting. And then times when you are just so grateful for the food God's given you, the family God's given you, the salvation God's given you through Jesus, those are good times for feasting. So I'd encourage us to welcome both rhythms. God cares about the rhythms of our life. I see in scripture work and rest, for example, uh, morning and rejoicing, for example, night and day. Those are all God's design. And I had never thought about my food in terms of rhythms until I opened God's word and saw it right there on the pages. That's so good. That's so good. Um, tell us about Aunt Rhonda and the perfect pie crust. Mm, Aunt Rhonda is one of my favorite people on the planet. <laughs> um, she is my mom's twin sister, and she is a whiz in the cook. She makes in the kitchen. She makes it look effortless. Uh, and one of the things she's most famous for in my family is her peach pie. And she taught me how to make pie crust. I've always made them her way. So when I was deciding who to dedicate the book to, she was an easy. Uh, low-hanging fruit there, really, because I know that she lives this. She loves Jesus with her whole heart. She manages both of those rhythms of fasting and feasting so beautifully. So the book's dedicated to her. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I'm one of those people who always, I want to appreciate the people who are like behind the writer and, and the inspiration for um, yeah. the things that we write. So thank you so much. Um, well, when I, so, she saw that the book was dedicated to her. She she was so excited, called a whole bunch of people, and, uh, which is so sweet because, you know, I'm just her niece. I'm nobody special in her eyes, but it was meaningful to her. So that's been a fun part of the book. Yeah, that's not true. You are you are precious in her sight. I guarantee it. So what does um, what does God's word say about food and our relationship with it? Because that's really that gets us into, um, you know, the, the heart of what you're doing here um, in in fasting and feasting. 
Yeah, it's like so many things when you open God's word. The Bible is among many things. It is a manual for the practicalities of life. And if you open God's word and say, okay, what, what's here about food? Be ready because you can you could be studying that topic for years. I mean, think about Genesis, uh, the fall of man, that related to food. Think about then Cain and Abel, just a few chapters later, where the brother killed brother. What was that about? Well, it was about a grain offering. That's a, a food reference and, and the jealousy that it caused. You can think about the Israelites as they fled Egypt in Exodus. Uh, what, what did they grumble about? They grumbled about food. They said they missed the leeks and garlic in Egypt, never mind that they were slaves there. And um, God provided manna for them and water from rocks. And you just go to Leviticus. There's all kinds of food regulations, the seven feet Eastern Leviticus 23, which was God giving his people rhythms for how to live in the promised land. And it was like feast, 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 feast. We see that uh, in the prophets, there's some themes about food. Then we jump into the New Testament and it's not like um, God stopped talking about food at all. I mean, just concentrate on the gospels and we see Jesus eating and drinking often. Some of those meals really significant. I think of the last supper with his disciples, Jesus called himself the bread of life. Uh, so he was using a food rhythm there. Um, I think of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a fair amount of food in that famous sermon of Jesus and the epistles. There was the new church fought about food. What was clean? What was unclean? Um, and then all the way to Revelation, which describes the wedding feasts of the Lamb. I think there's reason to believe that we're going to eat in heaven. So here's just kind of a basic thing that was revolutionary to me, which is that God cares about my food. Um, he, I'm not a disembodied spirit. And it's not that I'm supposed to be constant, you know, meditating 24 hours a day and not paying attention to what I eat and what I put into my body. God made me this way. God made you this way to need food. And it's an area of my life that that I just hadn't consciously invited him in. And he wants to be a part of all of our lives. He tells us to love him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. And that includes all of our habits, uh, including what we eat. So I think if you opened your Bible, you'd be amazed how much food is addressed. And there's kind of two themes. One, thank God, because he's given it all to you. And two, steward it so well, because it is a gift from God. Um, a couple of conversations that I've had in the past leapt to mind as I was, um, you know, preparing for our conversation today. One is a book by Aaron Chambers called Eats with Sinners. And, mm. um, and, and like you, he, he walks through, um, particularly in the Gospels, uh, you know, Jesus's, um, the times when he's eating and drinking and notes that every meal Jesus ever ate from, you know, from the time of his birth to the Last Supper, <laughs> every meal he ever ate, he ate with sinners. Mm. So, I mean, I just think that it's just one of those things when we think about, you know, how Christ is made known in the breaking of the bread um, and the fellowship that we have the opportunity to have, particularly on days of feasting. I mean, I feel like those are the times when I'm most likely to engage with and encounter people who maybe disagree with me. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, thank the Thanksgiving table or whatever, like there are these opportunities where we gather with larger groups of people and there's a better chance of being with people with whom I disagree on those occasions than on others. And so um, one of the things you've inspired me to do is to prepare when I know that there's a feast coming to prepare for that by fasting. Yeah, like, beautiful. yeah, to, to actually like adopt the rhythm, um, at least in relationship to the feasting times that I know are coming um, in my own life. 
We're going to continue this conversation um, with Aaron Davis, author of Fasting and Feasting, 40 Devotions to Satisfy the Hungry Heart. When we come back, I'm going to invite Aaron to read um, one of the devotions to us um, or with us. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of what we do on live radio every day. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Right now, we're inviting you to share your Faith Radio story. What do you love about Faith Radio? What do you love about Mornings with Carmen? How has this program changed the way you think or the way you live, the way you engage others in the conversations of the day? We really do want to hear from you. Your story could encourage someone else and certainly glorify God. So share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leave us a message today. Again, thanks for listening. It's like the brightest sunrise waiting on the other side on the darkest night. Don't ever lose hope. Hold on and believe. Maybe you just haven't seen it. Just haven't seen it. Continuing our conversation with Erin Davis. She's a writer and a teacher. She's passionately committed to getting women of all ages into the deep well of God's Word. So as we ask every single day, where in the Word are you today? I encourage you to be in the Word of God, that the Word of God may be in you, so that when life squeezes us, as we know it will, um, what comes out of us will be the very grace and truth and beauty of of the Lord our God. So it is Taste and See Tuesday. We're talking with Erin about her book, Fasting and Feasting, 40 Devotions to Satisfy the Hungry Heart. Um, I'm tempted to direct you to a particular day, but then I'm also, um, you know, I also want you to like read your favorite one. So do you have a favorite? Um, And if not, um, then choose either days one through four or days 37 through 40, because the bookends of this book are really fantastic. Mm, oh, thanks so much. I don't know that I have a favorite, but day 20 came to mind uh, as you were talking about the Thanksgiving table, um, because that is just around the corner and it addresses some of the baggage, for lack of a better word, tied to food in my own family. So if you're good with it, I'll jump in there. Please. Do you want me to read the whole devotion? Well, um, well, Let's just read it. Yeah, just go. Yeah. I'll run. I'll read till I run out of steam. How's that? You're good. Yeah. Uh, It's a feasting day. So the way the book is built is that it alternates between fasting and feasting. So this is a feasting day. The title is Please Pass the Self-Loathing. And the verse for reference for you to look up on your own and see what God's word says is Ephesians 5.29, which says no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. Here's what I wrote. My mom's crockpot corn, yum. My Aunt Rhonda's pumpkin pie, pumpkin pie cake, double yum. My granny's cranberry salad, thanks, but no thanks. But it makes my kind of nose turn up even reading about it. Each dish <laughs> makes an annual appearance at my family's Thanksgiving dinner. There's a less appetizing tradition we also keep on repeat, a generational pattern of self-loathing. As the men move into the living room to catch the football game, the women fall into familiar conversations. We bemoan the food we just ate. We vowed a diet in earnest in the new year. We joke that we remove the calories from the pumpkin pie. Though we smile and pat each other on the arm, inside, no one is laughing. Listen to the words one woman wrote me. Do you see yourself in her story? I have struggled with food and body issues my whole life. 
I don't remember a time when I didn't feel ashamed of how I looked and even how I ate. I've studied scriptures, read the good books, preached to myself, prayed, asked others to pray, started this plan and that diet plan, and paid money I didn't have for this new guarantee of success. And yet here I am, staring over a new year, starting over a new year with the same heart resolutions, praying and hoping this will be the year the chains fall off. Eat, regret, shame, repeat. How many of us live in this perpetual spin cycle? Must we always live and eat this way? Hold that thought. Let's take a quick detour into the seemingly random subject of marriage. And there, if you were reading this at home, I would invite you to read Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. Let me unpack it a little bit. In these verses, Paul gave practical instructions for how husbands and wives should interact. Verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I don't believe Paul's goal was to provide a mini marriage counseling session. This passage is about something bigger and more eternal than wedded bliss. It shines a spotlight on a profound mystery. That's from verse 32, the mystery of Christ's deep and lasting commitment to us. The leap from marriage to food shame isn't as long as you might think. Look again at verse 29, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. And then I'll leave a little meat on the bone, so to speak, but I want to get us to the final thought I was trying to present there. Food insecurity may be a lasting result of the fall. I still haven't outrun it. I don't know any woman who has, but shame doesn't have to pull up a seat to every table. We need not chase every meal with a serving of regret. More often than not, we do not fail, fail on purpose with food. We don't run headlong, run headlong toward failure. We stumble and trip, stumble and trip. Here is a grace. When we stumble, we are caught up in Jesus's forever covenant with us, and we cannot break free from his love and commitment to help us through another day. The internal shift God's word offers us is this. Our imperfect care for our bodies is a daily reminder of just how much we need the perfect love and grace of God. Aaron, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate your willingness to, yeah, read the whole thing because I think that um, that helps people taste and see, like, right, what is in this 40-day devotion. The book is Fasting and Feasting. You can connect with Aaron at aarondavis.org. And from there, um, all of her socials. Um, when, you, when you think about craving, mm. I want to move from, like, the cravings that seem to sometimes dominate me, right? The, I mean, I'm not really hungry every time I walk through the kitchen, but you know, right? right. Somehow, some way over COVID, every time you pass through that room, you, you know, you have to stop and nibble on something like, right? So mm-hmm. why, like help us on this, the, the changing the craving, craving yeah. the word of God, craving time with God instead of the cravings that seem to torment us. Mm, man, what a good description. And we all face that because we're all uh, people of flesh and we, we have dual natures. Uh, we've been made new creations in Christ. That's true. Um, but unfortunately, we don't sh- shed our propensity towards sin until we're with him. And, and giving into cravings isn't always a sin, but it can be. Uh, what came to mind as you were talking was a conversation I had with my doctor about three years ago. I made an appointment, which is hard for me to do. I have a little bit of white coat syndrome. I think all, a lot of us do. But it's in Because the first thing they make you do is step on the dumb scale. You are and right. You're like, and usually I it's don't in a public area. 
Yeah. And they're announcing it. You know, there's people within earshot. And so I did. I, I made the appointment, though. I walked through this scale in the hallway situation and the doctor came in. She's a follower of Jesus. Great bedside manner. That's why I made the appointment with her. And she said, what's going on, Erin? And I immediately started crying. And I said, you're, you, you're going to run tests today. You're going to do blood work and you're not going to find anything. Um, but I don't feel good. Every day I'm exhausted. My joints hurt. I am irritable and I don't know why. And she began to talk to me about food. And what she said was, she said, we live in a world where it's very hard to make the right choices. There is a lot of marketing directed at us trying to target those cravings. And she said, the more you eat junk, the more you crave junk. And it becomes a cycle. She said, but the good news is the reverse is also true. The more that you begin to eat healthy, make better choices, the more you're going to crave those things and the less you're going to crave the sugar and the complex carbs. And I immediately knew there was a spiritual parallel there. I mean, all truth is God's truth. And that's so true of the things of God. I mean, the more you read your Bible, the more you're going to want to read your Bible. It's not like social media where I look at my Instagram feed, I click out of the app, and I immediately want to open it again because my cravings weren't satisfied. Not so with scripture. Uh, I do want to open it over and over, but I don't have that intense impulse. Um, So the more you read the Bible, the more you're going to want to. The more you're with the people of God, the more you're going to want to be with the people of God. And the more you fast, frankly, the more you're going to want to fast. I I would fast all the time if I could, because fasting is feasting. It is a tremendous gift that God's given us, like the disciplines of prayer, like the disciplines of Sabbath. So I do think that we have more control than we think over our cravings. And it boils down to what we feed uh, ourselves, physically speaking and spiritually speaking. So I can attest that I'm no longer a slave to my physical cravings. My doctor was right. Now, I don't do it perfectly. None of us do. But I have a salad every day for lunch. And about 10 o'clock, my body's going to start going, "Mm, can't wait for that salad. Uh, I crave it. And it's uh, like I said, it's true spiritually as well. So good. Um, so helpful and such a blessing. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on this Taste and See Tuesday. Um, you can connect with Aaron online at aarondavis.org. You can get from there to all of her socials. The book we've been discussing uh, is Fasting and Feasting. It's a 40-day devotional to satisfy the hungry heart. Um, Aaron, I hope you'll come back again and talk with us. Um, I feel like you this has been the word. Um, I'll this, be there. Just, yeah, a real blessing. Thank you so much. Oh, um, you're listening to Maurice Carmen. Yeah, thank you so much. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. All right, I'm going to apologize for those of you listening on the app. Um... Ryan and I actually have no control over the weird things that are automatically firing on the app this morning. So we have communicated with the engineers and the powers that be. And uh, maybe in the meantime, listen at MyFaithRadio.com to the live stream. Um, The same things should not be firing there. We don't really know what's going on. So apologies for um, all of the interruptions during the program today. For those of you listening on the app, we are aware of it and we are making others aware of it. But Ryan and I actually are not controlling it. So on the list of things we don't control today, that would be among them. So we're going to hand it over um, to the Lord. Maybe there's something today you need to give to the Lord. You know, you're not in control of it. So just let him have it. 
Um, Hey, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.